With that in mind, we can now pivot to our final chapter today. And it's a masterpiece. Uh, it's, we're back to Nephi. Mr. Glory and Plainness, and hallelujah for that, okay? Yeah, we're going to get his explanation of the quotation that he just gave us. And this is going to last, into, uh, last through next week's lesson as well. 25 is just where we'll begin, but next week we'll get 26 through 30, and that's a masterpiece as well. But to turn to chapter 25, I mentioned this analogy, uh, or you gave this example last week, where in chapter 11, he was there, we're, look, we're facing the, the jungle, a thick forest, if we want to use uh, one of Isaiah's preferred metaphors, right? And there are vines and, and tangles and brambles and weeds and probably poison ivy and poison oak. And this is, who are you ready for this? And all through chapter 11, Nephi's there to pump us up. I delight, my soul delighteth in these words. So please, it's worth it. Remember this. Liken it to yourself. Rejoice in the message. See yourself in all that he's saying. And then go. Plow forward. And we did. We had enthusiasm and momentum back in chapter 12 and, and 13 and then 14 and 15. We started getting a little lost, but then, hey, 16, Isaiah's called and like, okay, we can do this. And then 17, we started getting a little iffy and 18 and 19 and whew, 20 and 21. Am I still not done with this thing? I swear we should be out of the jungle by now. Does the forest extend forever? Whew, 23 and uh, 24 and finally... We start to see a little light poking through the leaves and wonder if it's just a little clearing before it gets worse. But when we get there, we emerge into this glorious, wide-open prairie, this plain, and Nephi's standing there. And he looks like he just he's well-rested and showered, and here we are with dirt in our faces and moss in our hair, and we have struggled uh, we're beaten and bruised and bloodied and thoroughly confused by all that Nephi put us through. And he looks down and smiles and offers us a hand and picks us up and dusts us off and kind of straightens our robes and says, that was a little harder than you thought it would be, wasn't it? Uh, sorry, not sorry. I needed Isaiah's persuasive power. I needed you to see that we've been through this kind of stuff before. And if it applied to Isaiah's original audience against the Assyrian threat, and, against, and it applied to a later audience against the Babylonian threat, applies to me against the Lamanite threat, it applies to you against the threat of the wicked world. You've got to know this stuff. So forgive me for having subjected you to it, but now that you're here out on the other side, let's make sure you saw the landmarks I was pointing out. Let's make sure that by now your soul delights in the same thing that my soul and Isaiah's soul delighted in. Let's, let's see where we've been. Chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. Some of these things we pulled out super briefly last week to point out some keys to understanding Isaiah. We'll go through them quickly again here. Now I, Nephi, do speak somewhat concerning the words which I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. Okay, Back to me, Nephi. For behold, Isaiah spake many things which were hard for many of my people to understand. <laughs> You're like, yeah, understatement of the year. And if your people didn't even get it, how do you expect us to? Well, we'll get there. Now my people, they know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. 
for I, Nephi, have not taught them many things concerning the manner of the Jews, for their works were works of darkness, and their doings were doings of abominations. You wonder if Nephi still has some strong feelings about the people he left behind in Jerusalem, the people that threatened his father with death, the people that were bringing upon themselves their own self-destruction. It's our fault that Babylon's coming. And, oh, those wicked people. I don't, I don't want my own people to learn from those kinds of lessons, unless it's a cautionary tale. I'm not going to get into too much specifics as the manner of prophesying among the Jews. As Jacob will tell us in a later date, often they looked beyond the mark. And that was a problem. I don't want my people to, to do likewise. And yet, he gave us the hint, the better we know the manner of prophesying among the Jews, the more Isaiah's prophecies will make sense. Again, that's where we get Hebrew poetry and rhyming ideas and, and how he's trying to convey his images, his symbolism. Well, I'm not going to give you all of those details, but uh, maybe you can figure some of that out on your own. But then, verse 3 and 4, Wherefore I write unto my people, and unto all those that shall receive hereafter these things, which I write, so he knows that later generations are going to have it too. That's the beauty of written words. I can quote it. I can re-engrave it. We can bring it out again in the modern day. That they may know the judgments of God, that they come upon all nations according to the word which he hath spoken. Sounds a little like Amos 3.7 right there, doesn't it? Surely the Lord will do nothing save he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. That's what's happening here. God's judgments will come upon all nations. Isaiah warned Israel about that. He warned Judah about that. He's warning you and me about that. So hearken. That's what Nephi says next. Wherefore hearken, O my people, which are of the house of Israel, and give ear unto my words. For because the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you, well, so be it. Nevertheless, they are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. And just in case that makes you feel bad, they're like, oh, great, so I don't have that spirit, I can't prophesy? Well, fine. I give unto you a prophecy according to the spirit which is in me. Wherefore, I shall prophesy according to the plainness which hath been with me from the time that I came out from Jerusalem with my father. For behold, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people, that they may learn. You see, what we're seeing here from Nephi's perspective is once you see Isaiah's prophecy, through the lens of Nephi's prophecy, it should all be crystal clear. Let's take everything Nephi, uh, that Isaiah was describing about the scattering and eventual gathering of Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all the, everything, uh, the, the rod coming out of the stump and the restoration growing out of the apostasy and all those things that Isaiah talked about, I saw some pretty, um, some pretty epic things in my own apocalyptic vision back in 1 Nephi. I have the spirit of prophecy, and I, I glory in plainness. Okay? So that's why I tried to spell out the prophecy with the help of the spirit and the angel back in 1 Nephi. I'm going to come back to some of those things here. I already did this. I did this at the end of 1 Nephi, but that was just a preview of coming attractions. That was just a foreshadowing and a foretaste of what I was really trying to do in these all-important chapters in 2 Nephi. This is the more sacred part. Everything else was just building momentum. And so when I quoted some easy Isaiah chapters back in 1 Nephi about the gathering of Israel in a very personal way and 
kings and queens putting you on your shoulders and bringing you home and who hath begotten me these and all this glorious stuff. The stuff I taught at the end of 1 Nephi. The stuff Jacob taught in the, at the beginning of 2 Nephi. Those were easy Isaiah chapters. Okay? And then I explained them. I explained them through the lens of my visions and prophecy of the latter days. That's why 1 Nephi ended with book of Revelation kind of imagery and Satan being bound and all the Armageddon and millennial reign and second coming. All of that was my explanation of Isaiah through the lens of my apocalyptic vision. Then I had Jacob basically do the same thing. And he quoted and built, extended upon those same Isaiah chapters and then gave you his version of things based on his visions of the Lord. He gave you his name, Christ. I'll give you his name, Jesus, in just a moment. But this is all of this is all of 1 Nephi 10 being interpreted through the lens of 1 Nephi 8. Dad's vision of the olive tree interpreted through Dad's vision of the tree of life. This is Isaiah talking about the scattered branches of the olive tree interpreted through the lens of Nephi's vision of world's history or Jacob's understanding of the plan of salvation that Lehi taught him. I hope I'm not being too confusing here. The better we know first and the beginning of second Nephi, the better we see what Nephi is doing here. This is, this is the story of Christianity and restoration and final fulfillment and second coming and millennial reign and it's all right here. And so if you have that spirit of prophecy or even my prophecies for you. That's why you don't have to even rely upon your own spirit of prophecy. You can rely on mine for now. I want you to see what I saw. I wished you would. I hoped that Laman and Lemuel would when I came down the mountain. Well, they didn't ask. And if you don't, then at least lean on my visions for a moment as we use them to make sense of Isaiah's visions. You see, he says in verse 5 and 6, Yea, my soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah, for I came out from Jerusalem. And mine eyes hath beheld the things of the Jews. That was another one of the keys. You've got to know about Jewish stuff so you know what Isaiah is talking about. And I know that the Jews do understand the things of the prophets. There is none other people that understand the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them. Well, save it be that they are taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. But behold, I, Nephi, have not taught my people after the manner of the Jews, but behold, I of myself have dwelt at Jerusalem. Wherefore, I know concerning the regions round about, I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God, which hath come to pass among the Jews, unto my children, according to all that which Isaiah hath spoken, and I do not write them. So, in some ways, Nephi here is saying the Jews' story is more of a cautionary tale. I'm not going to give you all the gory details, but enough that it hopefully scares you into <laughs> repentance, wakes you up out of your spiritual slumber. Again, we, as we said last week, there's all kinds of hints he's dropping here of things that would make Isaiah easier for us. Nephi gets it. He's the great Isaiah scholar. But he knew the Jewish manner of prophesying. He had the spirit of prophecy. He knew Jewish stuff. He knew exactly all these images that Isaiah was talking about. He knew Jewish uh, geography and history. So the regions round about, when he's talking about the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, he gets it. When he's talking about Oasiria and, and Babylon, it's like, yep, I know all of that. 
And the better we know all of that, the more Isaiah will make, make sense to us too. But then we also have this advantage. And it has to do with the spirit of prophecy, but living in the day of those prophecies fulfilled. You see, look at verse 7 and 8. Behold, I proceed with mine own prophecy according to my plainness, in the which I know that no man can err. And that's what he's going to start doing in verse 9. Okay? He's going to give us his own version of all of this. His prophecy that's super plain. And bless him for that. Nevertheless, he goes on, In the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they shall come to pass. Wherefore, they are of worth unto the children of men. I didn't waste the last 12 chapters. Okay? Yeah, I know you'd have it on the brass plates, or you'd have it in your, the, the book of the Jews that will go forth out of the hands of the great and abominable church. All those things. You'll have this stuff, but you need to have my version. You need to say it, see it in my context. You need to see it couched between my motivation and my explanation. You've got to look at it through the lens of my visions. So they are of worth unto the children of men in those last days, those times when they shall come to pass. Now, for anybody who disagrees with me, who isn't sure if they really are of worth unto the children of men, let me say something to you. He that supposeth that they are not, well, unto them will I speak particularly, and confine the words unto mine own people. For I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. For in that day shall they understand them. Wherefore, for their good have I written them. And that's important for us to realize, that these chapters really have been written there for us. Because we're living in the days of their fulfillment. In our days we'll understand them. Not only will, be, will we be living what Isaiah foresaw and foretold, but we'll be living what Nephi foresaw and foretold. It's like Isaiah saw it from his angle, Nephi saw it from his angle, and with the two, we're finally getting some depth perception. And if we're living in the day of that fulfillment, we can look back at Isaiah and go, yep, I'm with you. We can look back at Nephi and go, yep, I'm with you. And here we are. Oh, they better start making more sense to us. We're the ones reenacting them. We're hearing the echo and then putting into practice all the lessons learned. Are we the righteous remnant? Are we the leaven that leavens the lump? Are we part of this new growth out of the old stump that's then meant to create new growth throughout the entire forest of family trees? Are hearts turning from fathers to children? Are we remembering the covenant and the great things that God has done for our fathers? Are we making sure that God can keep his word? Huh. By accepting that word made flesh. By extending that word to every willing ear, eye, heart. Huh. Is it go time? Yeah. So let's go. Now for Nephi's plain prophecy, he said he's going to give it to us. He just allowed us to be fairly confused for 12 chapters straight. And now let me give you a plain prophecy that will only take eh, 11 verses. From verse 9 through verse 19 is Nephi's plain prophecy. As he's trying to sum up in very condensed form all that he saw in those 12 chapters he just quoted. Okay? Prepare for some 
some scriptural concentrate <laughs> from 12 chapters down to 11 verses. Verse 9 and 10. As one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity, even so have they been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities. You see, this is the pride cycle. This is the, the cycle of wickedness leading to destruction. And that seems to be the story of the house of Israel over and over and over again. Did you get a sense of that in Isaiah 2 and 3 and 4 and 5? What we saw just in 2 Nephi 12 and 13 and 14 and 15? It's all right there. But then Nephi says, Never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. Again, we're seeing a hint of Amos 3.7. God always gives them the heads up because he always calls prophets. What had God done in Isaiah chapter 6 or 2 Nephi chapter 16? Oh yeah, he called Isaiah. In the midst of all of these pride cycles and the destruction of generation after generation, he foretells them of the next round through a prophet that he called. And that prophet responded, right? Here am I, send me. Wherefore, Nephi continues, it hath been told them concerning the destruction which should come upon them. Immediately after my father left Jerusalem, there's the Babylonian version. Nevertheless, they hardened their hearts, and according to my prophecy, they have been destroyed, save it be those that were carried away captive into Babylon. There's Israel scattered, Israel in exile, just like Isaiah warned. So all that we've been reading so far in the Isaiah chapters, Nephi is giving us the Cliff Notes version of it, okay? Summarizing it. He then says in verse 11 and 12, Now this I speak because of the Spirit which is in me. So I'm not doing this just at my own request. The Lord wants me to, to say this to you. And notwithstanding they have been carried away, they're scattering, they shall return again, there's gathering, and possess the land of Jerusalem. Wherefore, they shall be restored again to the land of their inheritance. But, behold, they shall have wars and rumors of wars. But then notice this pivot. And when the day cometh that the only begotten of the Father, yea, even the Father of heaven and of earth, shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh, behold, they will reject him because of their iniquities and the hardness of their hearts and the stiffness of their necks. Ooh, it's right there that the Old Testament now becomes New Testament. It's right there that Lehi's prophecy in chapter 10 spawns Nephi's visions in chapter 11 of 1 Nephi. Because Lehi had talked about, yeah, there's an olive tree and cut off branches, but eventually there's going, to be, there's going to be a prophet. No, 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 make that a Messiah. No, 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 make that the Son of God. Yeah. The Son of God is going to come among the house of Israel. But unfortunately, they will, they'll reject him too. That's, again, the, the foundation that Lehi lays for Nephi to build on this with his apocalyptic visions. And he sees it all. He sees the birth of Christ, the coming of that prophet, Messiah, Son of God. But then he sees the Jewish rejection of that Messiah. And then in the aftermath, here comes apostasy and restoration. And then Armageddon and Adam on Diamond, right? All of those things that Nephi saw. And so here in this pivot point, it's like he's watching Isaiah and here's the layer cake. And then Nephi adds his own layer. 
It's like I know Isaiah's recipe well enough now. I know exactly how to make the same shape. And so these things that keep happening generation after generation of the pride cycle and destruction and prophets warning and prophets being uh, rejected and prophets being ignored, and it's going to happen to Isaiah too. It's going to happen to the Messiah. He's the ultimate example of God sending a prophet who said, here am I, send me. And people and warning them of impending destruction if they don't repent this time. For him, it was the Romans. Might as well have been the Babylonians. Might as well have been the Assyrians. And they're going to reject him too. They're going to reject the only begotten of the Father. In fact, verse 13 they will crucify him. And after he is laid in a sepulcher for the space of three days, he shall rise from the dead with healing in his wings. And all those who shall believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Wherefore, my soul delighteth to prophesy concerning him. For I have seen his day, and my heart doth magnify his holy name. Here Nephi is laser-focused on the Savior's mission. He knew that Isaiah was being messianic. And though the layer cake allowed for proximate interpretation, or I should say immediate fulfillment, and a young woman will conceive and bear a son, it'll be Mahershal al-Hashbaz, and people will know, and it'll be fine, and the Assyrians aren't going to be a problem for us. But really, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And yeah, his name will be Emmanuel, actually, his title. And God will be with us, word made flesh, dwelling among us. But rejection and rejection, I just want people to know about this Messiah. I just want people to know about the only begotten of the Father. My soul magnifies his name. I want it to be as big and bold as any Latter-day reader could ever ask for. Because he's their only shot. He was our only shot. And will we place our trust in him? Will we magnify his holy name? That crucifixion I just prophesied of is interesting because that crucifixion will actually lead to resurrection. That bad news is what allows for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's atonement. That's gathering That's restoration. That's millennial reign. That's celestial kingdom. That's what this is all about. So in verse 14, Behold, it shall come to pass that after the Messiah hath risen from the dead, that glorious news, and hath manifested himself unto his people, unto as many as will believe on his name, behold, Jerusalem shall be destroyed again. This is now the Roman occupation and destruction. For woe unto them that fight against God and the people of his church. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered among all nations. Yea, and also Babylon shall be destroyed. Wait a minute, I thought you already said that. Well, well, yeah, the literal Babylon. I'm now talking about the symbolic one. I don't know what it's going to be called. I guess you'll say Rome. But then again, will you say something about more modern Europe or modern America or whatever the wicked world is, is labeled in your day, it's going to be destroyed. Babylon shall be destroyed. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered by other nations. That's actually interesting about those other nations because, yeah, the Romans would scatter Jews and the Greeks would scatter Jews and the modern nations would scatter Jews. 
Oh, anti-Semitism has a long and horrible history. And for all of this to happen, while God's hand is stretched out still, when will we finally learn? When will we finally come to our senses and take the other hand, the merciful one? Because in verse 16, after they have been scattered, and the Lord God hath scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, yea, even down from generation to generation, until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement, which is infinite for all mankind. Oh, you see, the spiritual gathering has to take place first. This is all that redemptive turbulence we saw from Elder Maxwell. They're finally starting to believe in Christ. His atonement is the only solution to all of these problems. And it's infinite. All mankind, every Jew, every Gentile, if we can be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, remember that's thesis statement, Book of Mormon, title page. When the day comes, that finally works. When we're persuaded to believe in Christ. When that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in His name with pure hearts and clean hands and look not forward anymore for another Messiah, Oh, then at that time, the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. Now, pause there for a moment. This idea of the Messiah as opposed to some other Messiah. Oh, the Messiah that's going to come among you, the only begotten of the Father, that Son of God that my dad talked about, that I saw in vision, that Jacob saw in vision, that Isaiah saw in vision, Oh, there's, there's messianic prophecy for you. And he will be the Messiah that you need, even if he's not the Messiah that you want. Remember when Jesus came, one of the reasons that he was rejected by the people is because he wasn't the military Messiah that was there to free them from Rome. That's what they'd expected. No, he was the spiritual Messiah that would rescue them from sin and death. Those are scarier monsters than any, any Roman legion could be. And so for them to understand that, what Nephi seems to be getting at here is we have to come to terms with, with the only begotten. We have to accept him on his terms instead of our own. And in fact, what's going to have to happen for any of that to take place, is what he says at the end of verse 16. They're going to have to believe these things. Now, what are these things for Nephi? Well, it's these things. It's this book we've been studying for the last few months. It's the Book of Mormon. It's Nephi's... Well, first take Isaiah. Write it down, but then seal it up. And, and wait for it. This sealed book... This bound-up law and testimony will eventually come forth. People will read Isaiah. Fast forward. Nephi, bind it up. Mormon, Moroni, lay it in the hill Cumorah. Eventually it will come forth. Joseph, you ready to start growing out of the stump? And are you ready for new growth to grow out of what the foundation you will lay? Because these things. The Book of Mormon is meant to convince the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It's meant to convince 
scattered Israel, that they are not cast off forever. And see the great things that God has done for our fathers. In Isaiah's case, in Moses' case, the exodus, the gathering, whatever it might be. The resurrection, the restoration. This is the kind of things that, these are the kinds of things that God does for our behalf. So hold on to hope. Hold on to these things and their glorious messianic message. You see, in verse 17, the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. And that's really interesting the way Nephi phrased that. Notice he didn't say he'll restore his people from their captive and scattered state. I mean, yeah, they'll do that too. But he's talking spiritual gathering, not just geographical gathering here. It's their lost and fallen state. Now we're going Christian. We're going plan of salvation. Right? Just like, just like Jacob did in 2 Nephi chapter 9. He's going to restore us from that fall. Wherefore, he will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. And that phrase comes from a later chapter of Isaiah. One he hasn't quoted yet, but one he will quote repeatedly next week. That comes from Isaiah 29. And what's this marvelous work and the wonder? Well, it's the bringing forth of these things that are going to bring the Jews to this incredibly important knowledge. Now, Nephi says here, again, he'll come back to Isaiah 29 later on. But here he says, wherefore, he shall bring forth his words unto them. It's all about words. It's about things written down. It's about scripture crying from the dust. And these words shall judge them at the last day. For they shall be given them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who was rejected of them. Again, that's straight out of the title page. Unto the convincing of them that they need not look forward any more for a Messiah to come. For there should not any come, save it should be a false Messiah, which should deceive the people. For there is save one Messiah spoken of by the prophets, and that Messiah is he who should be rejected of the Jews. That's it. Now think about what Nephi is trying to explain. What's going to restore the house of Israel? What's going to convince them of the true Messiah? Words. Nephi's words. Isaiah's words. All these words woven together. Jacob's words, let's add his in. Lehi's words, let's bring him as well. And moving forward, there will be so many more words that are all meant to add to this growing cloud of witnesses that's bearing testimony of the Son of God. It's these words that will work the marvelous work. It's these words that are the wonder. Oh, and they are wondrous to read. Nephi then ends his plain prophecy, his very abbreviated summation of all that Isaiah taught. Verse 19, For according to the words of the prophets, and Isaiah would be chief among them, the Messiah cometh in 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem. Dad had said that too. And according to the words of the prophets, multiple witnesses, and also the word of the angel of God, so think about all the sources that Nephi is drawing upon, his name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's groundbreaking, eye-opening, jaw-dropping. Jacob learned 
that the Messiah's title would be Christ. He learned it from an angel and revealed it to us in 2 Nephi 10. As he tried to weave together words of Isaiah, Old Testament, with Christian plan of salvation, New Testament. Then, fast forward, and now Nephi builds upon that. He learned the title Christ from his little brother. He learned details about the Messiah from all kinds of prophets that went before. But particularly with the help of another angel. Who knows, maybe it's the same one that visited Jacob. But with the help of an angel, he learns that it's not just Christ. It's Jesus, the Christ. And this Jesus, who, whose name is Joshua, Yehoshua, salvation. Oh, how's that for Emmanuel? How's that for the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father? How's that for everything we've been waiting for? To know this Jesus Christ, that's the grand finale of Nephi's plain prophecy. Isaiah really was messianic. The, 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 uh, the top of this layer cake, <laughs> there's the throne and Jesus Christ sits upon it. To understand all of these things that Nephi's been teaching, if we see all of the Isaiah chapters through what he just gave us there, maybe we now we have to go <laughs> after internalizing chapter 25. Do we have to go back now and reread the, first, the other 12 Isaiah chapters? Maybe. But to see what Nephi gets out of it, and then he says this, because he's done prophesying, but he's not done likening this prophecy unto us. He's taken Isaiah's words, which he told us every time Isaiah's been quoted, we've been told to liken. Liken, liken, liken. See how you fit into his grand scheme. And for Nephi to start doing that, He'll do it in verse 20, and he'll keep going for, for a long ways. What he says in 20, Now, my brethren, I have spoken plainly that ye cannot err. So that's kind of conclusion of what he just did. Now let's pivot, and let's talk about a few other things. I gave you that prophecy. It was way plainer than Isaiah's, but hopefully you saw the parallels between the two. And now let me say this in as strong a language as I possibly can. As the Lord God liveth, and, and that's rock-solid oath language. I'm going to swear on the existence of God. We say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Well, I'm willing to risk my eye on this. Well, how about risking God's own existence on this? As the Lord God liveth, that brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt. So he's got an amazing track record of bringing out the captive. Okay, gathering the scattered. He's good at this. He's the same one who gave unto Moses power that he should heal the nations after they had been bitten by the poisonous serpents, if they would cast their eyes unto the serpent which he did raise up before them. Remember that story. Isaiah hinted at that himself, right? The fiery flying serpents. Again, track record. Bringing life out of death. How's that for resurrection out of crucifixion? Just look and live. And also, here's exhibit C of the kind of God we're worshiping. We saw Exodus in one, brazen serpent in two. Here's three, gave him power that he should smite the rock and the water should come forth. How's that for providing living water out of 
something dead, just a stone. Oh, but the stone of Israel that will be raised, the living Christ that will be raised upon a staff, a cross that is. All this incredible imagery from the Old Testament that is echoed in the New, it's all coming together here. And what is Nephi's testimony based on this? Again, as the Lord liveth. Well, here it is. Yea, behold, I say unto you that as these things are true, and you know they are, you've read it, we've grown up with these messages, and as the Lord God liveth, let me repeat that strong oath language, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ, of whom I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. It all boils down to that for Nephi. The culmination of his plain prophecy, Jesus Christ will come. How does he liken all of this to himself? Jesus Christ is the one that saves us, the one that gathers us, the one that lifts us and heals us and, and feeds us. He's the one that, he, he is the lamb without blemish. He's the Passover lamb. And that's how we got out of Egypt. He is hung upon the, the, he's the brazen serpent lifted upon a cross so that if we'll just look to him, we can live. He is the stone of Israel that was smitten by a Roman spear so that water could pour forth living water and spread life from the foot of a cross. I love how Jewish Nephi is with his love of Isaiah. And I love how Christian Nephi is with his love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He swears on God's own existence that the only hope we have is Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved or freed, or gathered. Can you see why Nephi wants us to come unto him? Why he wants to waste and wear out his life in persuading us to believe in Jesus? To liken all these things to ourselves so that we realize that the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there, as his little brother said. That we know that there's no other Messiah Take the one that God has sent because anyone else who claims to be one is nothing but a false Messiah and all the false hopes that they engender. Hold on to this. That verse, verse 20, is so key because it's with that that he can then pivot and teach something oh, blatantly Christian. That he can fully pivot from Old Testament to New Testament. Well, not fully. I, I'm going I'm to... Caution against using that word. Let me qualify it a little. But he is pivoting from Old Testament to New Testament, from Messiah to Christ, from Moses to Joshua, if you want to put it that way, from law to grace. We can definitely put it that way. Nephi will. And so the last few verses of 2 Nephi 25, which are absolutely incredible, these are ones we come back to often without, real, without usually remembering they grow out of the Isaiah chapters. 
I mean, in some ways, just like Jacob's takeaway from Isaiah was so epic, we even forget that it grew out of. We, 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 we were so enamored by the branches, we forgot the roots that it grew from. Nephi's going to do the same thing. And he's going to give us uh, these final verses today and then so much of next week's discourse and the week after that that we forget that this, this has a Jewish foundation. Okay, this is rooted in the messianic rock. And so notice verse 21 and 22. Wherefore, so there's his connective tissue, as a result of all of this, because we know it's only through the Messiah, the Son of God. Wherefore, for this cause hath the Lord God promised unto me. There's covenant language. That these things, remember he referred to these things back in verse 16? The Jews have to believe these things. That's what's going to convince them. That's what's going to bring them. That's what's going to help them look and live. These things which I write shall be kept and preserved and handed down unto my seed from generation to generation. These will be just like Isaiah's writings that had to be sealed up so that a later generation could bring them forth. Nephi's words will hiss forth just like Isaiah's will. And why? That the promise may be fulfilled unto Joseph. Mm, Joseph of Egypt. The brother who saved the rest of the family. The birthright son. Mm, someone who was scattered himself in order to gather the rest of the family in. I mean, go back to 2 Nephi 3 and what Lehi said to his son Joseph about what Joseph of Egypt had prophesied about Joseph of Palmyra. It, there's amazing parallels all here. But the promise to Joseph was that his seed should never perish as long as the earth should stand. Wherefore, these things, and that's code for Book of Mormon, these things shall go from generation to generation as long as the earth shall stand. And they shall go according to the will and pleasure of God, and the nations who shall possess them shall be judged of them according to the words which are written. Man, as far as Nephi sees it, it all boils back down to the Book of Mormon. Words to perform a marvelous work. Words to perform a wonder. No wonder it's all coming together. No wonder he's weaving together all these incredible strands. This is the most sacred part, and this is what he, where he's giving us the climax of it all. He says in verse 23, For we labored diligently to write, just like Isaiah had to, to persuade our children, there his eyes are to the distant future, and also our brethren, there his eyes are on the present all around him, to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Now that passage is one of the most quoted verses in the entire Book of Mormon. And yet, in my opinion, one of the most misinterpreted ones too. And that's dangerous. To keep on hammering away at something we're not getting totally correctly, that extends a problem instead of a solution. So let's not, let's not stop quoting 2 Nephi 25-23. Let's start understanding a little bit better. And maybe the first thing to understand is how it grows out of the context. Okay, That this passage grows out of all those Isaiah chapters. It's the very next chapter. Nephi has just given us his quick summary, his plain prophecy. As a result of that prophecy, he's now bearing witness 
that it was all emphasizing Jesus Christ. As a result of that, he's clarifying that Jesus is our only hope for salvation, for gathering, for resurrection, for restoration. All our hopes are riding on him. No wonder, then, if these words are meant to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, if these things are going to catalyze the marvelous work and the wonder, then you've got to understand Jesus. No wonder we are trying so hard, laboring diligently to write all these things down so everybody from our moment on down will know that Jesus is the Christ. You've got to believe in him. You've got to reconcile yourself to him. Because it's only by grace that you are saved. No matter how much you've done, despite everything you can do, at the end of the day, the only hope we have is Jesus. Otherwise, we are mere axes, boasting ourselves against the one who is chopping with it. We are mere saws, taking the credit for everything that God cuts down with us. We cannot boast in ourselves. We cannot rely upon the arm of flesh. We can't become one more Israel or Judah, one more Assyria or Babylon. We've got to learn from all these cautionary tales that the only hope we have is in Jesus Christ and in his all-sufficient grace. When you take that word grace and follow it through the pages of the Book of Mormon, the first person to invoke it is Father Lehi as he's teaching Brother Jacob that it is only through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah that we are saved. And how great the importance of making these things known unto the children of men. That there's no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved. That's it. You see where Nephi is getting this? Because when Lehi teaches Jacob about the Savior's grace and lets him know that it is by the righteousness of thy Redeemer that thou art saved, and that because of that salvation is free, if we can freely accept it, we're saved by grace. Lehi says it. Jacob understands it. Jacob teaches grace in 2 Nephi 9, building on what he learned from his father in 2 Nephi 2. Oh, the greatness and goodness and glory of God. Oh, his mercy and grace. It's by his grace that he saves us from the awful monsters, death and hell. The ultimate scattering of us from our body and us from our parents in heaven. That's how it happens. It's through grace. And so Nephi walks us through all of these Isaiah chapters. And his grand finale is a reminder that it is by grace that we are saved. Jesus is the Lord of the gathering. He's the Lord of the resurrection. He's the Lord of the restoration. He's the Holy Messiah. And we have to come unto him. Or we're not going to make it. No matter how much we do. Even after all we can do, we can't save ourselves. Our works cannot save us. The law of Moses cannot save us. We're trapped in Egypt and we need a Passover lamb. We've been bitten by fiery flying serpents and we need something on the, a brazen serpent raised on the staff. 
we will die and succumb to the awful monsters. And unless Jesus comes, that's it. So it's only grace. Now here's where this verse gets so misinterpreted. Maybe you learn this in freshman English or some kind of composition course. That often you want to save your most important line for your last line. Because that's what's going to be hanging in the air and echoing in the mind of your reader or your hearer. So save your best line for the best, save your best sentence for the end of the paragraph. Save your most important phrase for the end of the sentence. But what's the end of Nephi's sentence? It is by grace that we are saved. That's the most important phrase. In context, that's crystal clear. It's only Jesus. It's grace that we're saved. But then what does he say? Uh, after all we can do. Why did you? No, don't leave that. Don't leave our doing lingering in the mind, echoing in the ear, like, oh, but have I done enough? Have I done all that I can do? Because that's a tall order. Think about it. In Jacob 5 and Isaiah 5, the Lord of the vineyard in both instances asks an interesting question. What more could I have done for my vineyard? And if even God wonders that, if even the Lord of the vineyard thinks, could there have been more than Heaven help the mere mortal that asks themselves that question. If any of you struggle with toxic perfectionism, if any of you struggle with scrupulosity and the fear that you'll never measure up, if any of you are like Jacob, Nephi's beloved younger brother, anxiety-ridden over, have I magnified my calling enough? Then the phrase, all you can do, is a death sentence. Because I can't do everything I can do. I will always fall short of that. And yet, if grace only kicks in after all that I can do, no wonder I never feel it. No wonder it never comes. I haven't reached the point of absolute exhaustion because I'm still here. Do I only meet Jesus on the day of my death? Of my final collapse? even if it's just shy of the finish line, just shy of the point where I would have made it and I wouldn't have needed grace after all? No, we cannot save ourselves. That's impossible. So what's he saying here? He's saying that it's by grace that you're saved. Then why did you finish with that phrase? Hmm. There's actually a fascinating article written about what the phrase, after all we could do, would have meant when Joseph Smith first translated whatever was written on the gold plates there. And after, in that context, that grammatical construction, does not have to do with timing and chronology. Because that's the danger. If we read it like after, you do this first, and then after this comes. Chronologically, we do all that we can do. And after that, ah, oh, grace saves us. But again, we'll never get to that point because I'll never get done with all that I could do. Any of you returned missionaries serve good missions? Oh yeah. Could you have served better ones? Any of you who, have, who are currently magnifying a calling, bless you for that. But could you magnify it more? Of course. But again, that's where our scrupulosity sets in. That's where our perfectionism becomes toxic. And it actually keeps us from accepting the grace that's always been there. Not just waiting in the wings, 
to come in at the final moment. In historical context of Joseph Smith's period, after all we can do means despite all we can do, or notwithstanding all we can do. Believe me, this is not to minimize what we can do and what we should do and what we must do. I'll come right back to that. But it's to keep, if it's not to minimize that, it's to keep us from maximizing that. Because there's no maximum. <laughs> you understand? So no wonder Nephi is saying in context, just flip it around. Even just reverse the order of things and it'll make more sense. He sets it off with a comma, so that's a, a separate clause that we could just set, rearrange in the sentence. And what if Nephi were to say it this way? We labor diligently to write. Well, we're working hard. We get, don't get me wrong. But we're trying to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. Because here's something we know. We know that despite all we can do, notwithstanding every effort we offer, even after all of that, it's by grace that we are saved. Period. End of discussion. Exclamation point. That's how it ends. No matter how much you've tried or how much you've worked, not the labor of our hands can satisfy all the law's demands. Should our work no respite know, should our tears forever flow, it's grace alone that saves us. That's it. It's our only hope. I cannot perfectly live the law because that ship has already sailed that ship has actually already sunk all have sinned and come short of the glory of god go back and reread romans chapter 3 it's crystal clear and in fact it should have been crystal clear after jacob's version that nephi is paraphrasing here i told you about this back a couple weeks ago when we studied second nephi 10. when that chapter ends with nephi excuse me with jacob talking about reconciliation, just like Nephi quotes, says here, and grace saving us, just like Nephi says here. And he even uses the word after, just like Nephi does here. Let me reread that verse and see if it rings some bells and how it compares to what Nephi gives us here. This is Jacob's explanation of Isaiah, his grand finale of his assigned Isaiah passage. 2 Nephi 10.24, Wherefore... So, consequently, as a result, wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. Just like Nephi said, we've got to believe in Christ and be reconciled to God. He's echoing what his brother taught. Then this phrase from Jacob, And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, so you're now reconciled. Your will is in perfect harmony with God's. Congratulations. You are fully back in his good graces. Oh, but it's grace that's been going all along. After ye are reconciled unto God, it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. That's it. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, the most important thing, the saving thing, is grace. Merits, mercy, grace. I love the way the anti-Nephi-Lehi's say it, because they use the phrase, 
all that we could do. But for them, all that they could do was repent. Stop fighting God. Go bury your weapons. Allow His grace to come and change you. Put your dukes down. Or even when you're stiff-arming God's grace by saying, but I don't deserve it yet, I haven't done all that I can do, then you'll never get there. Would you just love me as a Savior and Redeemer? Instead of only loving me on your terms as a teacher and guide? I talked to someone once about that, and they were struggling, really, for the first time in their lives. And I asked them, so when are you going to start loving Jesus? And they got so mad at me. Like, how dare you say that? I do love Jesus. And I said, I know you do. But you love him on your terms, not on his. You love him as a teacher and example and guide, because you've always learned that teacher's lessons and followed that example's example. You've never lost the guide until now. At least not really lost it. You were still never perfect. But now that you really need a savior, you don't want that kind of Messiah. Remember what Nephi said, there's only one kind of Messiah. Don't be waiting for a different one. Don't think that the only Messiah that can save you is the one that you've perfectly followed. The one that's your example, the one that's your teacher, the one that's your guide. No. Accept him as your savior and redeemer, which is an admission that you needed saving. You needed redeeming. You need his help. And all I can do is admit that. All I can do is repent of my sins and come unto him. Look and live. Accept the blood of Christ. Be gathered home to the mighty God. Is this starting to make sense? Now, some of you might think this is too good to be true. There's got to be room for works. And yeah, I agree with James. Works, uh, faith without works is dead. In fact, I agree with Paul, who right after teaching it's grace that saves us, and we've all fallen short, and we're never going to be able to save ourselves by perfect obedience to law. He then reads the mind of his hearers or his readers and says, let me guess. You're all saying, oh, so the law doesn't matter at all. And now I can presume upon his grace and put it on Jesus's tab. And I don't have to do anything. Since I can't do all things, now I don't have to do any things. Is that what you're saying? And Paul there says, God forbid. God forbid. And remember, Paul's God forbid statements are meant to keep the pendulum from overswinging. They're meant to keep a correction from becoming an overcorrection. So he's like, oh, no, no, no. I have established the law. I've confirmed what it's there for. Again, go back and re-listen to the lesson on Romans. It's all important. Here, Nephi's version of it is no less essential. And the point is, okay, so I don't have to do anything? Oh, no, no, no. You've got to do everything you can. What, to save myself? No. It's only grace that saves you. Then what's the works for? Ah, so glad you finally asked. I'm not telling you to stop the effort. I'm trying to make it less... I'll put it this way. I don't want you to be less active. I just want you to be less anxious. I don't want you to be less committed. I want you to be less concerned. I want you to have faith and hope and love and just keep your eyes on the Holy One of Israel because the narrow path lies in a straight course before Him. So don't fixate on your feet. Look at Him and just come. Come believing. Come rejoicing. Come running.
Because it's grace that's going to save you. Okay, fine, but what are the works for? I just said it. Jacob just said it. It's to reconcile yourself to God. It's to reconcile your will to the will of God rather than the will of the devil and the flesh. Oh, that pesky natural man or woman in all of us. Our will that wants to do its own way. You, that's got to change. Or even if God were to save you, your will would somehow, <laughs> you'd wiggle out of his embrace. You'd somehow work your way out of heaven. You're not working your way into it. You're, uh, this is why I love the phrase that Brad Wilcox coined. We're not earning heaven, we're learning heaven. We're developing righteous reflexes so we can accept the love of God and the grace of God instead of stiff-arming it, saying, nope, haven't done everything yet. Recently, I, I was talking to my BYU students, uh, most of whom were born in the 21st century, which is kind of scary. It makes me feel old. And I asked, we were talking about these verses. We were talking about grace versus law and works versus faith and how this all saves us. I saw the smoke coming out of their ears. They were really trying to, to, to wrestle with these issues. And how do I keep obeying the law without thinking that it's the law that's saving me as a result? Huh. How do I stay in the Goldilocks zone here with neither succumbing to a works righteousness kind of perfectionism, nor a presume upon the Lord's grace kind of laziness? How do I walk the straight and narrow path? And I told them as part of their homework, said it's optional, but go back and find an online version of the Karate Kid from the 80s. I grew up with the original, okay? They've made some remakes since then, but oh, nothing beats the original. When Danyo-san keeps getting beat up and he just wants to learn karate, so he asks Mr. Miyagi for some help. And he knows he's gonna get his lessons, his karate lessons, but before he gets them, in his mind, Miyagi says, hey, I gotta, you know, will you, will you wash my car? And the guy's got practically a car dealership in his front yard. And he says, you need to wash and wax. And when you wax, it's a very specific kind. Wax on, wax off. You remember this, you old timers like me? Uh, well, uh, Danyo-san waxes, waxes on and waxes off the whole fleet of cars for Mr. Miyagi, thinking, okay, tomorrow I'm sure he's going to start teaching me karate because I finally paid him in advance. Right? That's probably what he was doing. He was trying to get me to earn the lessons, and since I have nothing to give him, it's going to be sweat equity. And I'll just work and earn the reward I'm seeking. Okay, I guess that's, that's just. That's legal. Comes back the next day, and Miyagi's like, ah, good job on the cars. Today, it's paint the fence. And it's like, huh? And it's up and down and up and down and paint the fence, and, it, and the guy's got like the Great Wall of China in his backyard. He's got to do both sides of it. And it's like, are you kidding me? By the end of that day, again, Danyo-san is exhausted. He's like, man, these better be good karate lessons because I've really paid the price. Day three, I'm not sure if I'm getting the days in order right. But one of these, the next day, it's sand the floor. And he's got decks all over the back. And he has a very specific way of doing it. Sand the floor and sand the floor and do these wide circles and so on. And... Again, not only is Danyo-san's, not only are his muscles exhausted, his patience is exhausted too. And he comes back on day four, spitting fire in some ways, especially when he sees the note on the side of the house that says, sorry, I went fishing, but today you need to paint the house and make sure it's side to side. 
following the good grain of the wood. And by now, Danyo-san is livid. I am sick and tired of being slave labor for you when you don't do anything for me. What, you're only going to kick in a little help when I've done all that I can do? Really? I have to earn your grace? I have to do everything that you're demanding of me to perfection, and then and only then, after that, chronologically, then you'll start to help me? To me, the greatest moment in that whole movie is when Miyagi takes this angry Danyo-san. It's the part, even, it, it's, brace yourself, the, the language goes downhill in this scene because Danyo-san is so mad. And when Miyagi says, show me, wax on, wax off. Show me, sand the floor. Show me, paint the fence and paint the house. And then Miyagi starts throwing punches and kicks and Danyo-san finds all these reflexes as he waxes on and waxes off and paints the, the, the fence and paints the house and, and sands the floor. And in that moment, the light bulb comes on. And he realizes that Miyagi's been training him this whole time. The grace has been there from the beginning. This is not me paying for my lessons. These are my lessons. Not so I earn heaven, but so I learn heaven. I've retrained my will. It's reflexive now. I've, re, I've reconciled my will to the will of, the, of God instead of the will of the flesh and the will of the devil. That's what my works were for. To get me to stop stiff-arming God and His grace. To retrain me into a true disciple of Him. You understand now why I'm saying don't stop doing what you're doing? But stop doing it so defensively. Stop doing it so anxiously. Stop doing it so independently. If we can master this principle that Jacob taught so beautifully, and that Nephi tried to teach equally well, but a little bit of the syntax could have been changed, that's what changes everything for us. So, my friends, keep doing what you can. But do it for the right reasons. Purify your motives and, and your attitude will change. Your perspective on work will be sanctified. Our evangelical friends will no longer accuse us of trying to earn our way to heaven. They'll understand what lie, the attitude that lies behind our activity. And, oh, I'm just, I'm just waxing on, waxing off. That's it. I'm just painting the fence, painting the house. But, man, my reflexes, it's amazing what the Lord is turning me into. I'm already on the team. It's His grace that will save me. I'm just grateful for an opportunity to reconcile my will so that heaven will feel like home. Now, with that in mind, we could stop. This would be an incredible apex, climax, finish line for this great sermon. But he still has a few more verses, and they're incredible. Actually, when we were studying all these things as a class, I, my students are amazing. Your kids, your grandkids, uh, your nephews and nieces, 
They're absolutely amazing. And this semester particularly, I've been leaning more heavily on them. I want you to do more of the teaching, you to do more of the study, and let's figure things, some of these, let's crowdsource our scripture study, okay? And just a couple weeks ago, a student shared with me, he'd been studying 2 Nephi 25, uh, growing out of verse 23, and, and how does this work about what do we do, and how are we saved, and grace and works, and all this kind of stuff. And it dawned on him, he did some other research too. I, I can't remember how much of this was research, how much of this was just original insight, but I'd never seen this. And he pointed out to me and the rest of the class that verse 24 through 27, what grows right out of that all-important text in 23, is a chiasm. So Nephi learned Isaiah's imagery well. He knew the manner of prophesying among the Jews. And he could pull off a pretty amazing chiasm, just like his hero Isaiah could. And remember, chiasm, first line rhymes with, or first idea rhymes with last idea. Second idea rhymes with second to last idea. And it culminates in the central couplet that repeats itself. Okay? So notice how this works. We're going to do the rhymes first. Then you can go back and reread it all in order and go, wow, he worked in, he worked out. That was the crescendo. There was the decrescendo. There was the climax. It's a masterpiece. Here's Nephi's symphony. Verse 24. And notwithstanding, we believe in Christ. And with words like notwithstanding, it's like we're starting to see him try to stay in the Goldilocks zone. We're seeing him prove some contraries here between faith and works, between grace and law. So, notwithstanding, don't, don't swing too far, this is Nephi's God forbid, notwithstanding we believe in Christ, oh, we keep the law of Moses. You get it? We've got faith, but we're still doing the work. We know grace saves us, but we still keep the law, at least as best we can. But also this, we look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. Nephi here is combining the temporal and the spiritual, the Mosaic law and the Christian gospel. Here you have an Old Testament Hebrew believing like a New Testament Christian. It's kind of mind-blowing once you see it. Uh, skeptics look at this and go, what? These people knew Jesus way too well uh, for being a bunch of B.C. saints. Well, oh well, here it is. These are pre-Christian Christians understanding the law of Moses, and the purpose for which it was given. Because it's steadfastness in Christ that they're holding on to. This is works with an eye of faith. This is keeping the law, but keeping the law in its place. Subservient to grace, preparatory to grace, waxing on, waxing off. This is Danyo-san, if he had known in advance when Miyagi says, there's certain things I need you to be able to do without even having to think about it. And the best way I know to build these muscles and train these reflexes is to wax on and wax off and to sand the floor and to paint the house and to paint the fence and everything else. Can you imagine how... I mean, it would have sucked away some of the drama later on. Okay, that's too much of a spoiler. Uh, but... Can you imagine the attitude Danyo-san would have had in doing all those chores, quote-unquote? They weren't chores. This is the training. Thank you. Do you have any more cars to wax? Really? The fence is only that long? You, you get this? So, we believe in Christ, but we keep the law of Moses. We understand each one's role. And so here we are in the Goldilocks zone, balancing, proving these two contraries. 
That's the first rhyme. Now, if that's the beginning and the first rhyme, then where would we see its rhyme? At the end. And so for that, look at the end of verse 27. It should sound familiar. After the law is fulfilled in Christ, remember that's how verse 24 ended, until the law shall be fulfilled. So after the law is fulfilled in Christ, that they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away. So don't be so wedded to the law that the gospel makes it seem like you're being unfaithful. Unfortunately, some people felt that way in 3 Nephi 15. When the risen Lord comes among the Nephites and says, hey, I, I didn't destroy the law, but I did fulfill it. So no more shedding of animal blood. I've shed my own. And no more offering animals on the altar. Off, or offer the animal in you on the altar instead. Broken heart, contrite spirit. Some people were thrilled about this. In fact, some people were chomping at the bit and trying to stop the law of Moses when Jesus was born. And they're like, no, 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 it's his death that satisfies the demands, not his birth. So yeah, we still have to do the law of Moses for another 33 years. Okay, be patient. That was one extreme. The other extreme were the people he met in 3515 that were looking at him going, what? What do we do then? What do we do if we're not doing the law of Moses? Isn't that what you wanted us to do all these years? Well, yeah, but not for the reason you think. Okay? So be prepared for whatever changes the Lord gives, because these aren't just boxes to check for their own sake. You've got to be ready for the law's fulfillment, and that always comes through Christ. So you see the rhyme at the beginning and the rhyme at the end? Okay? Start of 24, end of 27. Now let's go the next level in. Second idea comes at the beginning of verse 25, just the beginning. For for this end was the law given. And its rhyme is in the middle of verse 27, just up from what we read a second ago. And know for what end the law was given. That's about as clear a rhyme as you can get. But that's the part we have to keep constantly in mind. There's a difference between ends and means here, right? And the law is our means, but grace is our ends. Jesus answers the ends of the law because he is the end of the law himself. It's what the law was pointing to and preparing for. Only he lived it perfectly, right? He wasn't saved by his own grace. He was saved by perfect obedience to law. But that's what allows him to provide the grace for us. Okay? With that in mind, everything they're doing in keeping the law is with a clear understanding of what they're keeping it for. It's not saving us. It's not all we can do. All we can do is reconcile our will and just want to be like Jesus and offer our broken heart and contrite spirit and learn the righteous reflexes and we finally are open to accept the grace that so fully he proffers me. You really, you wanted me home this whole time? You wanted to teach me to be like you and weren't requiring me to pay you off in advance or after the fact? Oh no, this was all training. That's it. Now that's the end of the law. Now we need to go the next level in, okay? Now, now we're on, we, if we saw A and A and then B and B, now we're on C and C, okay? And this third level of the rhyme, we see the first echo in verse 25. Wherefore, the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet, we keep the law because of the commandments. <laughs> there again, you see him go back and forth trying to stay in the Goldilocks zone. 
It's like, ooh, never, notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep, the, we keep the law. But nevertheless, despite the fact we keep the law, hey, we, we're doing it for, with faith in Christ. The law is dead, even while we live it. Don't get me wrong. But what we're really living in is Christ. Ah, oh, wax on, wax off, all you want. I know what this is for. Okay? And if that's the first part of the rhyme, here's the echo just ahead of what we saw in 27. So now it's the beginning of 27. Like I said, when you read all of these verses in order, it will flow beautifully. Here we're just breaking it up so we see the rhyme scheme. Beginning of 27. Wherefore, we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law. Just like he said before. And they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ. You see both rhymes now? Both that same idea repeated twice? We've got somehow to teach our children that the law is dead, even while we live it. That's hard. That's really tricky. That's proving contraries. That's the God forbid. We're establishing the law. We're helping you see how important this is. This is your training. But that's not what saves you. Okay? Real life comes through Christ. That's all. I was joking with those same college students. Did any of your parents have the guts to teach you the importance of the law of chastity and then end the lesson with something like this? Now, as important as these, this law is, kids, you do realize that the law of chastity is dead to you, right? And can you picture the teenager, uh, hormones raging? Wait, 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 what? I'm getting some mixed messages here, mom and dad. Uh, so the law doesn't apply to me? Oh, that's not what I said. It's just dead to you. Well, if it's dead, then why live it? Hmm, that's the question I'm asking you to answer. In what way is it dead even while it's asking for your obedience in life. Live the dead thing. Because otherwise, the real life will be dead to you. You understand? that This is really, really tricky. All the students kind of laughed and said, yeah, my parents didn't have the guts to say that to me. I'm like, yeah, mine neither. Uh, how do I explain it to my kids? How will you explain it to yours? How do you help them navigate the Goldilocks zone where they're doing all the right things, but they're doing them for the right reasons? That, like I said, not less active, just less anxious. I'm still anxiously engaged. I'm just not engaged anxiously, if that makes sense, mental health-wise. I, oh, I live the law of chastity. But it's not a burden. It's not a yoke. The Lord's yoke is easy. His burden is light. This is exhilarating. I'm reconciling my will. It's not just that he wants me to obey. He wants me to become as obedient as he is. And God doesn't feel required by rules to go a certain way. No, he just knows the manner of happiness. He's trying to teach us to do the same thing. So, yeah, we keep the law even though it's dead to us. The real life comes in Christ, but this law teaches me of him, shows me what his life is really like. This is what helps me develop what Paul called the mind of Christ, or to have his image engraven on my countenance, to live into the family name and the family business, to know that there is no other name given under heaven whereby I can be saved, only in and through Jesus Christ. 
his merits, his mercy, his grace. I just want to accept it. I want to receive grace for grace and progress from grace to grace until I receive a fullness just like Jesus did. He's offering me that. He's asking me to offer it to others because how great the importance of making these things known unto the children of men. You understand this? Now, if all of these are the rhymes, we still haven't reached the central statement. All of this, first and last, second and second to last, third and third to last, is leading to the fourth level of the chiasm. This is the end. This is, the, this is it. Crescendo up to this, then decrescendo from this. And then Nephi just gives us a few last words in parting. The most important part of this whole poem, the center of the chiasm, is verse 26, where Nephi says, And we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And yes, we write according to our prophecies. We seal up the law and bind up the testimony, and we want to make sure it's written down on, on scrolls of paper, papyrus, on plates of brass and gold. This has to be preserved. We want to write according to all of these prophecies. Why do you think I just recorded all of Isaiah? Why do you think I'm giving you all of these words? This is the most important stuff I could possibly pass down to posterity. And why am I doing it? Why are we doing it? that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Many of us already know that that is the most Christ-centered verse in the entire Book of Mormon. Or at least the most saturated in the Savior. No single verse uses his name so repeatedly. And do you see now why it's the center of the chiasm? What's the end of the law? Christ. Why is the law dead? Because life is in Christ. Why? In fact, this, I shared this with my students too, and they got a kick out of it. Years ago, I was with my family at Disneyland. My oldest daughter, who's now 20, almost 23, was maybe three, four, I don't know, something really small. And we were waiting in line for Dumbo. Now, at the time, <laughs> you know how when you go walk in a, at an amusement park and you're waiting in a long line, and the line kind of snakes back and forth until you finally get on the ride, and because it goes back and forth and back and forth, you keep passing the same people in line every time you turn around. You practically know each other by the time you get on the ride. Well, it just so happened that as I'm there as a young father, overly protective, I'm sure. I saw a young adult behind us in line, but close enough, we, I knew we'd keep seeing each other. And this was the first time in my life I'd ever seen anybody wearing those contact lenses that make your pupil look like the slit of a snake eye or a goat eye or a devil eye or something. And I remember like they were like red and had that slit. And I, I didn't know they were contact lenses at the beginning. I, I quickly assumed that. But at first I was like, how in the world did the devil get into Disneyland? There he is. And it freaked me out until I was like older. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to go, okay, that, that's not really the devil. Um, and wow, what, okay, it must be, man, what do people come up with now? Contact lenses that make you look like a snake? Snake eyes? This is, okay, whatever. And I was okay. But then I thought, oh no, if my sweet little girl sees that, 
she's going to be freaked out. And I can't just explain, oh, contact lenses. She's like three or four years old. This is real to her. And she's going to be traumatized. But I also can't say to her, now, don't look at the man over there with the weird eyes, because then what's she automatically going to do? What man? Ah! And then she's freaked out. So I had a challenge. I, how do I distract someone without calling attention to the fact that I'm trying to distract them? Hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to make sure she is fixated and focused on something else so that that's not even a temptation. I don't even know I was being tempted. I don't know. I didn't know I was looking away. I was just looking at something else. And so as we got closer, and I'd kind of see him rounding the corner and us the corner, like, okay, it's getting close. And is she going to see him? I would get down on her level away from him so that her back would have to be to him. And I was like, oh, Eden is going to be so excited. Don't you love Dumbo? And we love Disneyland. It's so much fun. And I was so in her face and so like emotive and excited that she's like, yeah, it's going to be so fun. It's great, great. And I keep doing that until the, the line passed and he was behind us out of my daughter's eye shot. And I'm like, okay, good. And then I could resume some dignity until we turned around and it happened again. And I'm back on the ground, like, Eden, it's so exciting, blah, blah, blah. And it's just in her face. She's like, yeah, it's going to be so much fun. And then we pass and like, okay, this is exhausting. Well, eventually we got on the road. Uh, it's not on the road, on the ride. And she'd never seen him. Mission accomplished. Okay. I felt proud as a dad. But man, I had to be overly emphatic to keep her from looking away. And what's Nephi doing here? Why so fixed on the Savior? To keep repeating his title? To just to say we, we write and we rejoice and we preach and we prophesy and we talk and it's always about Jesus. Why? Well, so our children know to what source they must look for a remission of their sins. Ooh, that's the clue. Why are you so emphatic? Because I'm so easily distracted. And for a group of Hebrews growing up in the Mosaic dispensation with the law of Moses full of its performances and ordinances and so many boxes to check and so many things to do and not do, oh, perish the thought that my children think that it's by obedience that they're saved. Perish the thought that they think that the law will save them when it's the law that kills them. No wonder I have to explain the deadness of the law. You can't keep it perfectly. It will leave you hopeless. But hopefully, it will transfer your hope to the grace of God. It will put the law in its proper perspective. You are reconciling your will. These are works of reconciliation, not of salvation. And only, gra only grace will save you. What source might you look to for a remission of your sins? Oh, the law that dictates your every behavior. But what's the source that will remit your sins? Only Jesus. It's not the bread and the water of the sacrament. It's the body and blood they represent. It's not the water of baptism that washes away our sins. It's the grace of Jesus that does. It's not the temple that brings us home. It's Jesus and the covenant relationship we forge with him in the temple that makes the temple feel like home and prepare us for the real home. He's getting ready for us. 
I pray this makes sense. I pray that we've done justice this week to what Nephi wanted to do with Isaiah and wants to do with us. Because that's the climax of the whole thing. It's Jesus. He gathers Israel. He conquers sin and death. He rises from the grave. He restores us to right relationship with him. He reconciles our will to his through the things he asks us to do. But he saves us through his grace, and there's no other way to get there. There's no other source but he. And if that's crystal clear, then I guess I can finish this chapter. So he says in verse 28, And now behold, my people, ye are a stiff-necked people. Oh yeah, Isaiah made that clear. <laughs> I've, I've been with you in all these wilderness wanderings myself, and yeah, it's a rough, a rough bunch. And since he's speaking to us, we're included under the same label. Wherefore, I have spoken plainly unto you. That you cannot misunderstand. I'm so plain that you don't just understand. You cannot misunderstand. This stuff is supposed to be foolproof. Why do you think I said Christ so many times during that chiasm? And the words which I have spoken shall stand as a testimony against you, for they are sufficient to teach any man the right way. For the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. For by denying him, ye also deny the prophets and the law. Which is interesting. For those of you that are still holding too tightly to the law and the prophets, like, no, but they're the ones and that's what I got to do. And what, are you canceling out the law? God forbid. But if the law and the prophets are pointing to Jesus, then by rejecting Jesus, you've rejected the law and the prophets. If the law and prophets are means and Jesus is ends, then by rejecting the ends, you've rejected the means. Is this making sense? It's only him. You are not being unfaithful to the law. You're doing exactly what the law intends you to do. Realize it can't save you as it points you to Jesus instead. Clear? If not, one more round of repetition. Verse 29 and 30. Now behold, I say unto you that the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. I know I just said that in verse 28, but I'm repeating it for emphasis. I'm trying to rivet your attention here. And Christ is the Holy One of Israel. How's that for a fusion of Old Testament and New Testament? Christ is the New Testament title. Holy One of Israel, Old Testament title. But it's still Him. Wherefore, ye must bow down before Him and worship Him with all your might, mind, and strength, and your whole soul. No wonder there's so many things we need to be doing to reconcile our will. But that's all it's for, is reconciliation. And if ye do this, ye shall in no wise be cast out. That's the key. Regardless of circumstance, we won't be cast out. We'll be brought in by the grace of God. And inasmuch as it shall be expedient, and yeah, it's still expedient right now, ye must keep the performances and ordinances of God until the law shall be fulfilled which was given unto Moses. There he is again, ending in the wrong phrase. <laughs> it's like, come on, Nephi. Can you put that earlier? Can we flip-flop the sentence? Can you go ahead and say, yep, don't worry, it's, God forbid, it's still expedient that we keep the performances and the ordinances, that's all they are, those outward kinds of things of the law of Moses, but really it's trying to work on the inward. 
And it's the inward that God has his eye on. When all is said and done, it's still Jesus. So please believe in Christ and deny him not. He will save you. Yeah, if we just would have reversed the order of that verse, it would have made more sense too. Through it all, I hope that I've been clear. Like I said before, stay active, but don't stay anxious. I'm not asking, Nephi's not asking us to be any less careful, just a lot less concerned. No less perfected, to borrow Moroni's clarification, but less perfectionistic, especially in the toxic way. Hold on to your service, but not your scrupulosity. You understand the difference there? Work, yes, but not worry. There's a difference between them. So in the meantime, keep the law, but don't let the law keep you from love, from the Savior's love, from the Savior's grace. That's the only source of salvation that exists. Isaiah would tell you that. Nephi would tell you that. Jacob would tell you that. Lehi would tell you that. The rest of the Book of Mormon will tell us that. And I'm grateful for that reminder. I need it. I think we all do. My friends, speaking of reminders, let's give us all as many of those as we can from these last six chapters. Uh, here is your, your list of one-liners that are absolutely beautiful. They'll crescendo, as Nephi did, with what we just finished studying, but hold on to these thoughts. What will ye do in the day of visitation? Where will ye leave your glory? By the strength of my hand and by my wisdom I have done these things. Oh, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? The light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. As when a standard-bearer fainteth, stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant shall return unto the mighty God. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. A little child shall lead them. As the waters cover the sea, his rest shall be glorious. An ensign for the nations. Assemble the outcasts of Israel. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. With joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Declare his doings among the people. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. The Lord will have mercy on Jacob 
and will yet choose Israel. They shall return to their lands of promise. The Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear. Art thou also become weak as we? How art thou fallen from heaven? Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? The Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. Filled with the spirit of prophecy, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people, that they may learn. In that day shall they understand them, foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. This I speak because of the Spirit which is in me. My heart doth magnify his holy name. The atonement which is infinite for all mankind. A marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. Convincing them of the true Messiah. His name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have spoken plainly that ye cannot err. None other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ. Reconciled to God. It is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. Alive in Christ because of our faith. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ. Know for what end the law was given. The right way is to believe in Christ. Oh, my dear friends, it's not only the right way, it's the only way. The only way we'll ever come home is through Jesus after all we can do, maybe we could rephrase, after all, what can we do? Well, I can repent. I can work the works of reconciliation. I can develop some righteous reflexes. But again, when all is said and done, those are not the things that save me. Only Jesus does that. May we rejoice more fully in the grace of God. When President Uchtdorf gave a talk about grace years ago in General Conference, an evangelical pastor friend of mine texted me, I think before the talk was even over, and said, Hallelujah, you Latter-day Saints are finally learning about grace. And I think I texted back saying, what are you talking about? Read the Book of Mormon. It's all over the place. Oh, but we need to embrace it. I'm grateful for Elder Uchtdorf and others who have elevated it and called it more closely to our attention. But it's been there on the page the entire time. I am grateful for the grace of Jesus. I, I have no other hope but Him. He has carried me through the valley of the shadow of death, for which I will be forever grateful. Alongside Nephi, my soul doth magnify his name. And all that we do, may we do in his name. Giving him that glory. Trusting that he is giving us his grace.